The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we are beginning our new series in the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. It's a book that one, um, one New Testament scholar calls a story on steroids. Okay, because the other Gospels, they might, they might headline Jesus' teaching. Mark concentrates on Jesus' actions. And as you read it, it is high-energy stuff. In fact, as we'll see, one of Mark's, you even see it in today's passage, one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. Immediately. No sooner has Jesus done one thing than he's off doing something else. Okay, Mark's point, though, is not to present Jesus as some kind of action man who gets on and does things. What he's doing is he... As he presents him to you, he wants you to face a question. Who is this man? Because you see everything that he does. Who is he? In fact, as Mark tells us, all of the extraordinary things that Jesus does, and the, you know, some people respond with awe, other people respond with opposition, it all builds up to the pivot point of the book. It's really a book in two halves, and the pivot point is in chapter 8, as Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, who do you say that I am? That's the question of the book. Who do you say that I am? Now, you and I, we live in an age where the question of identity increasingly defines life, doesn't it? I mean, our public square is mired in identity politics. Institutions and even nations experience crises of identity. And there is a social contagion of sexual identity among many young people. Who am I? Who shall I say that I am? Who shall I ask you to say that I am? But what Mark wants you to do is to look at this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and decide for yourself, okay, who is he? And that, I think, is a far more important question even than who am I? 
or who are you? Because it's the answer that you give to who Jesus is that will have defining power in your own life. Even, frankly, as it has had defining power over Western civilization to date. Okay, but right from the first mention of this book, the Gospel of Mark, in the historical literature, people have recognized that it was written by Mark, Peter's protege. And Peter, of course, was uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Mark wrote this probably around 60 AD, almost certainly to pass on Peter's teaching, either just before he was executed by the Roman authorities or shortly afterwards. So as you read this, as we study this together over the coming months, you get to read probably the earliest eyewitness account of what went on around Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so today we're going to look at Mark's introduction. We're going to look at three things, because it's Sunday morning. We're going to look at what the good news is, why you need it, and how you can receive it. Okay, what the good news is, why you need it and how you can receive it. Let's look at the first one then. What the good news is. Okay, look at verse one. The beginning of the gospel. Now, when our girls uh, were small, they loved dressing up and putting on little plays for us. Except as a parent, some of you parents will know this. Okay, as a parent, you learn something pretty quick, don't you? And that is when your children put on a play for you, when they start a show, okay, they've got a... Before they start, they've got to make you a promise. It's got to have a beginning, a middle, and most importantly, parents, an end, okay? So when Mark tells us that this is the beginning, he is saying this is an account of something that is going somewhere. But he's also telling you something else as well. Because if you were reading this in Greek, as the people who um, Mark is writing it to were reading it in Greek, and if you were reading the Old Testament in Greek, as they would have been doing, okay, you would have noticed something. And that is that the way Mark starts this echoes the start of the very first book of the Bible. Okay? It echoes the start of the Bible. As Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created and here is Mark saying, hey, here's another beginning. This is, I'm gonna, I'm, what I'm going to tell you about is the beginning of a new beginning. This is a start. This is, this, is, this, is God, this is the beginning of God's new creation. Now, maybe you long for something like that. You know, I don't know what state you've come here in this morning, but maybe you look at your own life. Maybe you look at the world. And you wish things could start over. You wish there could be a new start. And Mark is saying things can start over. And they will start over. Because they have started over. Because that is what gospel means. It means something great that has already happened. I mean, I don't know. We, we tend to think of the word gospel. We just immediately link it to the Bible, don't we? We think it's a religious term. Okay, it wasn't. They, caught, they used this. This is a term that's, that was used on the street for, for good news or glad tidings. And a herald, you know, one of the you know, uh, Roman heralds would stand in the, the streets and proclaim that the king has won a victory. The queen has given birth to a son. 
An amnesty is announced for rebels. Something has happened. Something's already happened. And it is good news. It's gospel. In fact, in one ancient inscription, there's a reference to the birthday of Caesar Augustus. And it says, The birthday of the God, that's Augustus, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of his good news, the beginning of the gospel of Augustus. Now, is Mark deliberately echoing that for the citizens of Rome who he's writing to? Probably, almost certainly. But what he is telling us, this is not good news about the latest autocratic politician and what they are up to. It's not even the beginning of a story about some great teacher or philosopher. This is the beginning of the story of someone far greater than that. Look at verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so first off, the, the gospel is not a set of instructions, is it? It's not, a, it's not a list of stuff that you've got to do to improve yourself. It's not a 12-step guide to personal wholeness. It's not a path to enlightenment. The gospel is a person. This new start, that, as we're going to see, we all need this new thing that God is doing. The beginning of a new beginning is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, look at verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. We tend to think of Christ as Jesus' surname, don't we? Like he could be Jesus Smith, or worse, Jesus Slack. Okay, fortunately he is not. Okay, it's not his surname. It's his title. It's Greek for Messiah, the Anointed One. And in ancient Israel, three types of people, three people were anointed with oil, prophets, priests, and kings. But with time, the anointed one, the Messiah, came to mean the longed-for king. The king is going to come, the greater son of David, who is going to come and who is going to put everything right. Okay, so even though Mark wants you to face up to and grapple with this question, who is this guy? It's no mystery thriller, is it? Right from the first line of the book, he gives the plot away. Who is he? He's the Christ. He's the longed-for king. Okay, that tells you something else. That the beginning of the good news is also the beginning of a confrontation because deep down you want to be king. I want to be king. We want to be the ones who decide for ourselves who we are. Who are I want to decide for myself who I get to say I am and who I tell you that I am. I want to decide for myself what is right and wrong, what I can or I cannot do. Well, Mark says, I've got good news for you. There's another king He is the greatest of all kings, and you have got to contend with him. And contend we must, okay, because he's not just a king. Mark says he's the son of God. 
It's why John the Baptist says in verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now in Judaism, the uh, disciple of a rabbi had to do everything for his teacher that a slave would do. He had to be willing. If he was going to enlist uh, in this rabbi's school, he has to agree to do for this rabbi everything that a slave would do except removing his sandals because that was considered too humiliating. That's too debasing for a Jewish person to do. I mean, get down there. In all the grime, all the camel, all the donkey dung, all the encrusted dust, you can't ask that of a, of a Jewish person. Only a Gentile slave could be asked to do that. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Compared to this one who is coming after me, compared to Jesus, I am lower than the lowest of slaves because he's the son of God. I read a story in the um, press the other week about a young American student who was going to Italy for an exchange trip. And her dad was of Italian extraction. So her parents bought her a DNA kit so that she could check out her heritage and try and meet up with long lost family members when she arrived in Italy. Except the test showed that she had zero Italian blood. In fact, further tests showed that she was not related to her father in any way. She had been born by assisted conception and it turns out there had been a mix up in the lab and she was the biological daughter of some other man. And an attempt to find her roots left her totally uprooted. Who was she? The reverse is also true, isn't it? Because for many of us, not for all of us, I know this is not universal, okay? For many of us, when you know who you are, when you know whose son you are, when you know whose daughter you are, when you know who your family is, that can give you a real stability in life. The good news of Jesus goes even further because when you know whose son he is and you find your identity in him, that can give you a rootedness that nothing else can. Second point then, why you need it. What the good news is and why you need it. And Mark begins by taking us to the Old Testament, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, except the quote that he gives, it's not just from Isaiah, is it? it's a composite of three quotes. Verse 2 again. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Okay, that's taken from Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 where God says that he will send a messenger, an angel, ahead of the people of Israel as he leads them out of slavery in Egypt and across the wilderness, across the desert and into the promised land. And Mark is saying, in our day, God has gone and done it again. And this messenger, verse 2, will prepare your way. Okay, that's a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, of how God will send a messenger to prepare the way, get this, for God himself, who is going to return and come to his temple. 
And that messenger, Mark is saying, is John the Baptist, who as Malachi predicted would resemble Elijah. And there is John looking like Elijah with his camel hair garment and eating insects. Okay, but then in verse three, there's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse three. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And through the prophets, God had warned Israel back in the Old Testament that if they did not turn from their sins, if they didn't stay faithful to the cov their covenant with God, all the curses of that covenant would fall upon them, culminating in the greatest, the worst curse of all, which is being cut off from the presence of God and exiled from the promised land. And tragically, that is exactly what happened. But then comes Isaiah 40, which Mark is quoting from here, where God says, but after that exile, after the people of Israel being sent back into slavery, after them being kicked out of the promised land, I am going to gather back all of my scattered people. I'm going to bring about a second exodus. Okay, but as you read Isaiah and Isaiah 14, what, what follows, you realize that the vision that God is giving Isaiah far exceeds Israel simply returning to the promised land. It is a vision of everything being put right, of creation being restored, of valleys being lifted up and mountains being leveled. It's a vision of God's glory coming and of God coming and dwelling with his people and of God gathering his people like a shepherd, gathering his people like sheep and holding them to his chest and bringing them home with him. And Mark is saying, Guys, that's what we all need. We all need that. We all need an end to our exile. We all need deliverance from slavery. We all need the curse of sin to be overturned. Because outside of Christ, we all live in exile from God. Now, of course, we might, you know, we might get glimpses of God, we, you know, like in the beauty of creation or in the love of others. We get glimpses of God but we don't see him or know him as he really is. The hard truth is we don't even really know ourselves. And deep down, we long for this to be made right. Deep down, we long for our relationship, we long to come home. We long for the, deep down we know the world is wrong, that we're wrong, and we long for it to be put right. We're homesick for home. But what we do is, as uh, human beings, is we, tend, we, we fill that longing with other stuff. And it satisfies for a bit, doesn't it? We try and find our significance in our work or in our relationships or in our hobbies or in sport. And, and it works for a bit, but it doesn't quite last. So we need a bit more. So what do we end up doing? We end up chasing after it. And we end up serving the thing that we thought would serve us. You know, to use the Bible's language, we end up enslaved to it. We're slaves. We're in exile and we're in slavery. And Mark is saying, well, this good news 
that I'm going to put before you is the story of how God is going to set you free and bring you home to the home that you are longing for. You see, it's not just Israel. It's not just ancient Israel who had a problem with sin that cut them off from God. We all do. It's why John does what he does in the desert. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people came to him from all over Judea and out of Jerusalem. Verse 5, confessing their sins. Think about that. Look at those people coming out to Jesus, uh, coming out to um, John in the desert. Who are they? What kind of people are they? They're Jews. Okay, these are these are good people. These are these are people who live good, upright lives. These are people who go to the synagogue or they go to the temple. They worship God. And John is calling them to repent and find forgiveness. Because sin isn't just a problem for people who we, you know, if you're a moral upstanding kind of person, it's not, sin is not just a problem for people who we think are sinful. It's a problem for the deeply religious or moral person. Because our pride in our moral superiority and our self-righteousness from obeying the rules the Bible tells us that can cut us off from God just as surely as breaking all the rules. It's why John baptising Jewish people was so surprising. Because baptism was an entry right for Gentiles wanting to convert to Judaism. And here is John saying, no, even if you're a Jew, even, even if you live a good life, even if you live a moral life, even if you consider yourself a member of God's people, even if you're a highly moral person, you too need to be converted. You too need forgiveness. Your ethnic identity is not enough. Your moral record is not enough. You need that debt of sin to be lifted off you, whether that is the debt of sin of breaking the law or of your self-righteous law-keeping. All of us need to be brought home from exile. I don't know, maybe this morning you look at your life and you hate what you see. If you're honest with yourself, when you're in private, you don't like what you see. And you know that sin has stained you. And you feel your separation from God. Or maybe you look at your life and you like what you see. And secretly, you think that God should be pleased to have you on his team. What Mark is saying is, hey, listen, we all need to hear this voice calling out in the wilderness. We all need forgiveness. We all need to be brought home, like Isaiah said. We all need the good news. Okay, but there's another reason that we need it. Jesus is baptised, the Spirit descends on him, he hears God the Father affirm who he is, and then verses 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, excuse me, <clears throat> and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Okay, the world that we live in 
is stunningly beautiful, isn't it? Okay, if you're on holiday this week, you're going to get a chance to enjoy and experience that. We live in a stunningly beautiful world, but it can also be dark and dangerous. And Mark doesn't go into the details of Jesus' temptations. He just wants you to see the big picture. That it's not just that you and I struggle with sin. It's that we have an adversary. You've got an opponent. You've got an enemy. Because that's what the word Satan means, an adversary, an opponent. We have got an enemy of all that is good. And that tells us that there is such a thing as evil and it is personal. Now, maybe you sit there and think, oh, come on. Okay, this is so primitive. We should move on from stuff. We should move on. We, left, we should have left believing in a, a real personal devil back in the Middle Ages somewhere. Okay, if that's you, I want you to take a, a, take a long, hard look at the world. Even the news from today. Ask yourself. Which better explains the world that you see? The view of secular liberalism or the view of the Bible? What better explains the world you see? A world of war and threat of war, of oppression, of human trafficking and of drug trafficking. What better explains that? The view of secular liberalism, that actually we're all really good people by nature, we just need a helping hand, and morality is all relative, and there is no such thing as evil, or what the Bible teaches us, that there are real and dark principalities and powers who want to steal, kill, and destroy. And if one makes more sense of what you see, why don't you embrace that one? And Mark begins this account by telling us this is the world that we live in. It's the world where you face an adversary, an enemy. And none of us are up to that battle alone. We need a power greater than us, a power greater than our sin, a power greater than our adversary. So we need the gospel. Last point then, how can you receive it? What it is, why we need it, how you can receive it. And out in the desert, John is preaching, verses 7 to 9. After me comes he who is mightier than I. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you were out there in the desert, that would have made you sit up and listen. Because in the Old Testament, who baptises people with the Holy Spirit? Who sends the Spirit upon people? That's not something that a man does. That's what God does. It's him who pours out his spirit on people. And through the prophets, he had said a time would come when he would do exactly that, when he would put his spirit in people's hearts and change their hearts. That by his spirit, he would get at the root of our sin and why we sin. And here is John saying, yep, and that time has come. The one coming after me has the power to create in you a new heart. And then Jesus comes. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Again, look what he does. Verse 9 again. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, now, 
When it gets to Jesus' trial, okay, what you're going to see is that no one can lay a finger on him. No one can say anything bad about him. They can't find a sin to accuse him of. Okay, so why would a man who no one could accuse of any sin undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? He's got no sins to repent of. He's got no sin to be forgiven for. So why be baptised? Well, look at him standing in the line. Look at him queuing up to be baptised. What's he doing? He's identifying with us. He's standing in line with you and with me. And as he came up out of the water, verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And through Isaiah, God had said that a king from the family tree of David would come and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And under that king, Isaiah said, the poor will be lifted up and the wicked will be put down and creation is going to be made new and the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And Mark is saying, that king has come and he's Jesus. The question is, is how is he going to do all of that stuff? How is a man, he's not even from, from Jerusalem, is he? He's got, he's got no high priestly qualifications. How is a man from the backwaters of Galilee going to deal with our sin and bring us home from exile and defeat our adversary? How is he going to make all things new? Okay, we'll look again at what God the Father says to him, verse 11. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Okay, nearly every commentator I read on this, uh, this week says the same thing, that when God the Father describes Jesus as his beloved son, he is echoing the words that he, God, said to Abraham when he told Abraham to take Isaac, his son, your beloved son. Take the son whom you love. Take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. But of course, Isaac was spared by a ram caught by its head in a thicket of thorns. And the commentators also agree that when God says of Jesus, with you I am well pleased, he's echoing the words that God speaks over the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42. My servant in whom my soul delights. With whom I am well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him. It's the same servant who, come Isaiah 53, is going to give his life for the sins of his people. Okay, but if Mark's book begins with heaven being torn open and God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, how does it close? As it draws to a close, we get the only other place where Mark uses that same verb for being torn open. And it says, Jesus dies on the cross, Mark 15, 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Two tearings apart, 
Two declarations of Jesus being the Son of God and they stand like bookends to the whole book because the, t the curtain in the temple was the tangible physical symbol of our exile, of your and my alienation from God blocking the way you can't come in to the place to the most holy place where God dwells but as Jesus the son of God dies that barrier is torn in two why because the way home is opened you see Isaac Abraham's beloved son he was spared but God's beloved son was not a substitute was provided for Isaac, but not for Jesus. Why? Because he was a substitute. Because he didn't just stand in line in baptism identifying with us. He identifies with us in his death. And at the cross, he takes our place and he pays for every sin that separates us from God so that we might experience the forgiveness and the grace of God and come home. And as we put our trust in him, his death becomes our death. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And as you put your trust in him, God the Father sees you in him, in Christ, and says over you as he says over him, hey, this is my beloved child, and I am well pleased with you. And when you know that, it will give you a rootedness and a grounded and stable identity like nothing else can because it'll give you the answer to who am I? Who am I? I am a child loved by my heavenly father. That's who I am. Okay, but that's not all that Jesus does. You see, after having the spirit descend on him, after hearing God declare his love for him, you might expect a party, mightn't you? You know, this is my son. You might expect some kind of coming of age, some kind of feast, some kind of celebration. This is God's son. What do you get? You get a battle as Christ the king goes to war. Verses 12 and 13 again. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. You know, in his first letter, John writes, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, three other people are called sons of God, or a son of God in the Old Testament. Adam, kings of Israel, and Israel itself. All three of them failed. All three of them fell before the adversary. But Jesus comes as the son of God. He comes as the second Adam. He comes as the ultimate king. He comes as the true Israel. And when he comes, he goes straight to the task. He heads for the battlefield. And he experiences what we all experience, wilderness, temptation, attack. But unlike us, he doesn't fail. And the writer of the Hebrew says it is that fact that he didn't fail, that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. It is that that can give you confidence. Not the fact that you resist temptation, not the fact that you're doing so well or not doing so well, 
What can give you the confidence to draw near to God's throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need is that he came through. You see, our sin, it will never make us confident in prayer, will it? It'll never make us confident in asking for God's help in life. Because we'll always have that accuser on our shoulders saying, you're not good enough. You don't deserve this. But neither will our pride in our own moral record. Because deep down we know there's always something more to do. But when you come trusting in Christ's righteousness, in his righteousness, not our own, all of those voices are silenced. So you can approach God's grace with confidence and you can find all the grace and all the help that you need for your life. But it'll also give you the strength to resist your own temptations and the courage to stand firm against the principalities and the powers of this dark age rather than being swallowed up by the darkness. It'll give you the courage to choose the good and work for the good all the time praying, Father, let your kingdom come and let the darkness be dispelled. Let's pray together.